So if you grab your Bible and turn to the book of Hosea chapter 3. Today we are in the final passage at, in ending one of the major sections of Hosea. That this first section is, is dealing with this theme of, of marriage, spiritual adultery. And we saw in chapter 1 that, that God told Hosea to marry a wife knowing in advance that she would be unfaithful, that she would become an adulteress. And he obeyed, and it was what we called a sign act, that it was modeling God's action in covenanting with Israel, saying that he would still covenant with them, even though he knew that they would be unfaithful and that they would turn away into sin and idolatry. And then we saw the, the children that were born to that marriage. Uh, at least the second two of the three were born... Uh, through adultery, but even those children were signed both of judgment and of mercy. Then in chapter 2, which we looked at in two weeks, the, the marriage of Hosea and his wife Gomer really retreats into the background, that it becomes center stage Israel and God, with God as the, as the wronged party in a divorce proceedings, this trial for adultery. But that at the end, there's this grand acquittal where God extends mercy, brings Israel back. And we see these, this promise from verse 16 of chapter 2 to the end where he's saying, this is what I'm going to hold out, this promise of life and hope and restoration, promises that from our perspective still haven't been fulfilled, that it was the, the hope of the, all things being made new and all things being made right in the power of God. But today, as we look at chapter 3, it turns again to the story of Hosea in particular. And this is the, the last biographical note for Hosea as God calls him to return and, and restore his adulterous wife as a picture of God's faithfulness. So again, this is Hosea chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they have turned, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, uh, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So immediately in this text, at the, at the very beginning, the first verse, you see this word love repeated multiple times. And it's this, this theme of love that carries through this entire chapter here in Hosea 3. And a lot in the church we talk about the love of God. It's a common theme that we sing about the love of God. We proclaim the love of God. But there can be confusion about what it really means for God to love us. Because even in this first verse here, you see it talking about the love of Hosea for his wife, the, the love of Israel, or God for Israel, lovers loving his wife in a way that was unholy, unrighteous, the love of Israel for cakes of raisins, that it's using the same, this word love in multiple different ways, even in our text. And so how do we understand the love of God? How is it that God loves us? And as we go verse by verse through our passage, we're going to see three answers to this, that, that God loves us unconditionally, sacrificially, and restoratively. That he loves us unconditionally, sacrificially, restoratively. And so right off the bat here, we see this love of God, this unconditional love. He loves us unconditionally. And look at, at verse 1. Here, Hosea is speaking in, in first person about God speaking, speaking to him. He says, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and, and is an adulteress. And so God wants Hosea here to offer this unconditional love to Gomer, his wife who had been unfaithful. And it says that she was loved by other men, that she had been an adulteress, she was unfaithful. And so as you think about love, if it's, this is not love that was earned, that in some way she had earned, she had merited, she had deserved the opposite, that Hosea could have justly, according to Old Testament law, entered divorce proceedings. He could have put her on trial for adultery, which, as we've pointed out multiple times, was a capital offense at this point. But yet God says, love her again. Go again to a woman who is loved by another man. And you say, why? Why would God command Hosea to extend this unconditional love to his unfaithful wife? And Hosea gives us the, the answer, or rather the Lord speaking to Hosea, because he says, love her even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so that though is saying that this is unconditional love, that, that the Lord loves his covenant people despite who they are, what they have done, that, that just as she committed adultery with other men, that Israel had committed spiritual adultery with other gods, Turn to Baal, to the worship of false gods. And, and it's interesting how it says that God adds to the list, and they loved cakes of raisins. And you say, okay, well, what's wrong with that? And there is speculation about why that's included in the list with adultery. Some people say that maybe it was used in some sort of pagan ritual. It would have been a, 
a delicacy, a dessert of the time. But I, I appreciate what, what one commentator said, that their, their love for the other gods, for sin, was selfish, indulgent, and pleasure-oriented. And even for something that's not bad in and of itself, their love for their raisin cakes, for their delicacies, for their desserts, was selfish, indulgent, pleasure-oriented. That, that really, whether it's something that is inherently sinful or something that isn't inherently sinful, that there is a sense of turning away, desiring the, the, the pleasures of this life rather than the God of the Bible, that they hadn't done anything to earn the favor of God, the love of God, but yet God extends this unconditional love. And that is the kind of love that God has for his people throughout the Bible. If you, if you look at the storyline of the Bible, think of the most famous verse in the Bible. What is the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it doesn't say that God loved the world because they were so great and they were so lovable and therefore he sent his son, but it says that he loved them and therefore he sent Jesus to provide the way of salvation to a lost, sinful people. That is unconditional love. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ didn't wait for us to get our act together before he died in love, pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But he did it in love unconditionally, in advance, before we ever turned our lives around. And just down in Romans 5, Romans 5 verse 10, it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That we were reconciled as enemies. That God chose us, set his love on us as enemies, as sinners, as spiritual adulterers, those desiring the pleasures of this life, big and small, rather than God. And yet he loves us unconditionally. And it's this grand, mysterious, unconditional love that God actually calls us as believers to extend to people around us as well. I mean, think of the, the famous command of Jesus in Luke 6. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But elsewhere in the book of John, Jesus says, even as I have loved you, so you are to love others. And that's what God does. He loves his enemies. He loves people who are rebelling against him. And the, the whole point of loving your enemy is when you're loving your enemy, you're not loving them because of what they are doing to you or because of the feelings that they have towards you. That, that to love your enemy is an unconditional love. That, that it's, it's a way of modeling the love of God for us. And you say, well, what does this look like? Well, it looks like Hosea bringing back his wife. But it looks like us extending love, costly love, as we'll see, to people who are hard to love. And we all have people in our lives who are hard to love. It could be a spouse or a child or a friend or a neighbor, family member, an enemy, someone of a different political persuasion, someone of a different nation. There are so many variations of it, we couldn't list them all. But the call for us 
Just as the call for Hosea is to model, to be sign acts in our own lives, to embody the love of God, unconditional love for those who are hard to love. And that's really our, our first observation about love here, that God loves us unconditionally. But then going on, second, God loves us sacrificially. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us sacrificially. Look at at verse 2. And you see Hosea embodying this sacrificial love. It says, So I, Hosea, bought her, my adulterous wife, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And so you see here Hosea buying back the adulterous wife. And we don't know exactly why he had to buy her back. It could have been debt. It could have been that she had actually entered a place of slavery or indentured servitude. Maybe she herself had become a slave, an an ancient form of of human trafficking, uh, that this in some sort of prostitution, that, that what she had pursued this this adultery had actually led to very literally slavery. But then here comes Hosea, and he buys her back in what appears to be a great cost to himself. Because in the the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verse 31, it it hints that the, the normal cost of a slave at that time would have been 30 shekels of silver. But you see here that Hosea doesn't bring 30 shekels of silver to buy her back, but he brings 15 shekels and a homer and a lethic of barley. And there's a lot of speculation about what exactly that that means, how much that is. Uh, there, There are different interpretations. But what seems to be clear is that he couldn't just bring the money. He didn't just have the money laying around, that he's cobbling together different forms of income and different assets that he, he may have had. He's bringing it all. He's, he's giving it to redeem this wife, that his love, his unconditional love was costly. It was sacrificial. And that's a great picture of God's love for us as well, that God's love for his people, for you and for me, is sacrificial. It's what we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so that's the picture of redemption in Scripture, that we are not our own. That we, through our sin, through our rebellion against God, had ended up in spiritual bondage to sin, to death, to the devil, to the the hamster wheel of life. And that God comes to ransom us, to set us free. And he does it at great cost to himself. The Son of God laying down his life for the forgiveness of sins, the the ultimate ransom, not of gold or silver, but the precious blood of Christ. And it is that sacrificial love of Christ embodied in our Lord Jesus laying his life down that 
provides the model for how we are called to love others. And you can see this very clearly in marriage, uh, that in, in scripture there's a picture of mutual sacrificial love between the husband and the wife. And so for men, according to scripture, men who are married, that you are commanded to love your wives sacrificially. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so that's not a selfish love, but the ultimate sacrificial love. That the model for the way that husbands are to love their wives is Jesus Christ himself laying down his life. And, of, and sometimes I think that, that husbands can think of that in a very much like, well, of course I would take a bullet in, a, in, in an extreme situation. But what can be the harder sacrifice of laying down our lives and modeling Christ is just the, the daily choices of sacrifice that we are called to, the, the sacrificing time to talk or sacrificing um, money to, to do something special or, or sacrificing pride to say that you're sorry or to apologize or admit when you're wrong, that it's this, this sense of pouring yourself out for the sake of the other. And a great picture of that is the, the theologian B.B. Warfield, who lived around the turn of the century and he uh, could have been probably one of the most famous, well-known theologians in the early 20th century, but that, that he had a wife who had a severe illness, and so he cared for her. He taught at Princeton Seminary, New Jersey. They said he couldn't be gone more than a few hours. Uh, he couldn't travel. He couldn't go other places and lecture. He was limited in the number of books that he could write, that, that he sacrificed his own career, his own life, for the sake of his wife. And, and we, somebody could look at that. Why would somebody do that? And it's really the call for every husband to lay down their life, even as Christ lays down his life for the church. Ephesians 5, 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then it adds, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so there's this call of sacrificial love to the husband in the marriage, but there's also a call of sacrificial love to the wife in the marriage. That in that same passage that tells men to love as Christ loves, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And sometimes we hear that in modern society and we bristle at the word submit. Um, and it's the word of scripture, not, not my word. And I think when we hear that word, it is important to recognize that that is a word that is used for believers in different walks, in different places, that children are called to submit to their parents, citizens are called to submit to their governments, members of churches are called to submit to their elders, their pastors, their leaders. And even as a pastor, when I was ordained, I had to make a vow of submission to the presbytery, to a submission to the brethren in the Lord. And so there are different roles of submission, but Scripture does command wives submit to your own husbands. And it doesn't use the word love, but if you think about it, that requires a form of sacrificial love as well. That To say, I'll, I'll let you lead. I'll let you have the tie-breaking votes. Uh, I'll let you take responsibility if it all goes wrong. 
um, that, that there is a degree of, of sacrificial love within that, that it's not easy. And so within marriage then, when it's modeling the love of God, that the, both the husband and the wife in their own way are modeling the sacrificial love of God, laying their lives down for each other. But of course, for those of you who are not married, or even for those who are, it's not just that sacrificial love is for marriage, that it's for all of life. I mean, and that's what we see in the, the great parable of the prodigal son, or sorry, the parable of the good Samaritan in Luke 15, really the prodigal son as well. Uh, but in the, you know, the parable Jesus told of the, the man who uh, was beaten up by robbers on the road, and then along came a priest who was unwilling to sacrifice, who was unwilling to love sacrificially, just passed the guy. And then along came the Levi, again, unwilling to sacrifice and love to help the man pass by. And then along came the Samaritan, and he sacrifices security, because who knows if the robbers are still around. He sacrifices time to, to bind up the wounds, to bring the man to an inn where he can be cared for. He sacrifices money, leaving it to the innkeeper to care for the man until he returns. That the picture there is, is deeply sacrificial. It's love that costs something, that, that, that is hard. And then the, at the very end of the parable, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. That the, the application at the end of the parable is, this is how I want you to love others. Like the Samaritan, to love sacrificially, to love unconditionally, to be sign acts of the Lord, modeling the sacrificial love to those around you. And so we said God loves unconditionally, he loves sacrificially, but then third and finally, God loves us restoratively. And we see this in verse 3. Right. Here Hosea speaks to his wife, he says, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be with you. And so as you look at what he tells his wife here, that, that the stipulations aren't, aren't punitive, they're restorative. In other words, he's not punishing his wife, but he's seeking to put her in a place to develop new habits, to be restored. You can think about this as a form of rehab, that, that for somebody who had struggled with drugs or alcohol, they might go through a, a period, almost a monastic period in their life, uh, where, they, where they have freedom from what had been uh, their, their oppressor, and they're able to develop new, hab new habits, new patterns of life. And that's what Hosea here is saying to his wife. He's saying, Gomer, I... I love you, I'm extending love to you, I'm redeeming you at great cost to myself, but I want you to enter into this time of rehab spiritually, physically, emotionally, where you won't go after other lovers, where uh, even I myself will refrain from intimacy with you for this period, to show you that the relationship is not transactional, that you are not an object to be used and abused, that you have, you have dignity, that there can be restoration, there can be healing, and that there will come a time, Gomer, when we can come back together again in true intimacy. That is what he's holding out to his wife, not just forgiveness for the things that she had done, but a restoration, a hope 
a desire that, that what was missed out, the faithfulness, the fidelity, the love, the intimacy that, they, that wasn't at the beginning of the marriage, or maybe was at the very beginning that was lost, would then be regained and reclaimed after this, this period of healing. And then Hosea says that that is exactly what God would do for his people. Look at verse 4. He says that he's going to do this for Gomer, his wife, for this reason, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days, and there's that same language that was used of his wife, many days, without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so you see here an outline of this faithfulness, this period of rehab that the, the Lord had for Israel, very similar to the period of rehab for Hosea's wife. And it says that for many days they would dwell without king or prince, without sacrifice, pillar, without ephod, household gods. And you look at those, those six things that they would have to forbear, five of them are good in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong inherently with kings or princes, but the kings and princes of Israel had begun to abuse their office and they become destructive. There's nothing wrong with sacrifice and pillar. That Lord had commanded that for Israel, but it had become sacrifices to gods, pillars set up to false gods. There's nothing wrong with a fod, the, what they would wear when they offered sacrifices to the priests, but that itself had become a, a garment used for idolatry. And then the last is household gods, which is bad in and of itself, irredeemable. But what he's saying is just as the, the Hosea's bride was to go without things that were not bad in and of themselves, like intimacy with her husband, uh, and things that were bad in and of themselves, like unfaithfulness and adultery during this time of healing. So Israel would go through this period. But then it says that, that afterwards, in the latter days, they would return, they would seek the Lord their God, that they would come in trembling to the Lord, to his holiness. And it says that they would seek the Lord and David, their king, which is such an interesting pairing, the Lord and David. And David lived 250 years before the time of Hosea. And so he's not saying that, that David himself is going to somehow be reincarnated, uh, but he's, he's predicting the coming Messiah that would rule and reign on the throne of David, who's going to be paired with God himself, that they're going to return not just to God, but to God and his Messiah. And I believe that this promise here, held out at the end of chapter 3, has three levels of fulfillment that you could follow uh, one to another. And I think the, the first level of fulfillment is what happened before the coming of Christ, that Israel did experience this time of spiritual rehab as the north went into captivity in Assyria, the south went into captivity in Babylon, the, the temple was destroyed, sacrifices were ended, there was no more pillar, there was no more ephod, there's no more household God. And it was a time of, of hardship, of suffering for the people of God, but it was designed to bring them back to the Lord. And that's what we sing at Christmas, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God 
appeared, that that's the exile, the, the longing of Israel. And then finally, Jesus arrives on the scene as the true son of David, that he lives the perfect life, dies a sacrificial death, rises again from the dead, and that what we read in the book of Acts is the story of the early church as the, the Jewish people, the, the remnant chosen by grace, is, is gathered together under the headship of the king. And that they seek the Lord their God. They seek David their king, coming in fear to the Lord, to his goodness in the latter days. And so these latter days here is really the New Testament period. It's the expansion of the church, that it's the faithfulness of the Lord that began all the way back in the book of Acts, this restoration coming under the headship of Christ. And we've already seen fulfillment of that. But I also think that there is a not yet element of this as well that has not yet been fulfilled. And you could say that that's the second level of fulfillment. Because today, the, the, the people of Israel, ethnic Israel, are still going through a period of spiritual rehab where they, there is no Davidic king there is no temple that was destroyed in A.D. 70. But there is this hint within Scripture that there is hope, even for ethnic Israel. In Romans 11, it says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved. That there, again, there seems to be this, this hope of, of restoration held out for ethnic Israel. And I, and I don't believe in what's called a, a dispensational interpretation of this that sees that fulfilled in a thousand-year period after the coming of Christ or sees two different tracks of redemption, one for ethnic Israel and, and one for the church. But I do think that, and this is common for, for all the greatest Reformed theologians, if you read the greatest systematic theologies of the covenantal Reformed tradition, that there, there seems to be this, this hint of, and that before, the, before the end, a promise of conversion, of mass conversion among the Jewish people, and, and not setting up a separate track, but what the vision of the church was from the beginning, Jew and Gentile, united together as the covenant people of God with Jesus as king, that God has not abandoned his people. But I think that, that flowing out of that covenantal love of God is a third level to this that, that has not yet been fulfilled. And the third level of fulfillment of the promise here is in the new heavens and the new earth and, and the restoration of all things. Because isn't it amazing that God doesn't just say, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to pardon you, and then send you out on your own, like a convict being released from prison. But rather, he says, I'm going to release you from prison, and then you're going to go through a period of trial, and then you're going to become the, the crown prince, that you're going to become heirs, you're going to be adopted into my family, that you're going to be restored to a status even greater than Adam and Eve were in the garden, complete and utter restoration. So that's what we can think about in our own lives today, that our lives in this world are periods of, of rehab, where we walk by faith, not by sight, where we still struggle with, with going back to old patterns of sin, even as believers, where we say, why am I still struggling with this after walking with the Lord for so long? And we see that it's hard, that, that we don't yet see God clearly. It's through a veil. But then... 
we see the promise, full, final restoration. Beholding God with unveiled faces. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Full, complete intimacy with the Lord. No more sin. No more temptation. No more addiction. No more struggles. No more fights. No more tears. No more suffering. To be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that's the picture that is ultimately held out here in this meal. Because what we see here is the unconditional love of God. That we don't come to this meal because we were worthy to begin with. That God loved us unconditionally and sent his son. And then we see that he loved us sacrificially. That his body was broken. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And that he loves us restoratively. That, that, he, that his plan is to then see this picture to be this final marriage supper of the Lamb where we will dine with Christ in joy and life and happiness and holiness forever. Now, if you're here and you've never repented and, and trusted in Jesus, we are we're thankful that you are with us. But this meal is for those who have repented and trusted in Jesus. And so uh, we ask that if you have not trusted in Jesus, that you wait today to take this meal. Uh, we ask that you, you wait if you've not made your faith public by being part of a church that preaches the gospel, if you're, uh, if you're restricted from taking the meal by the action of another church. And we also ask that young children who haven't yet made a profession of faith wait before they take this meal so that we can celebrate it with them, with them understanding what is symbolized and sealed. But for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church. You don't have to be a member of a Presbyterian church, to be one who is resting in Jesus, who is, knows his unconditional love, the sacrifice of Jesus, resting in his promises of full and final restoration. And really the, the promise that, um, that we see and the, the belief that we have in the Apostles' Creed, which is on page 8. So if you pull out your bulletin, let's profess the faith that we hold together as we come to this meal. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. <clears throat> the same way after supper, he took the cup. said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we'll come forward. No particular order. Come when you're ready. Uh, we have the, on this side are the non-gluten-free. Gluten-free is on this side. They look different. It's okay, they're still disposable. Uh, 
and you can see the wafer underneath, flip it over, and you can peel off the top there. Um, and then you can return to your chair, and we'll take it together, and then you can put that into the trash can um, after the service. Let's pray.